Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know, I never want to put it on the individual. I always want to make it a systems failure. If I can design it as a systems failure, then that's going to interest the jury a lot more, get the jury a lot more emotionally concerned about, you know, what happened. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, and am joined uh, by the uh, Yvonne. I was going to say the very poised Yvonne Godfrey today, but uh, but but now you're having some sort of technical difficulty, so I'm not sure I can use poised, but uh, I'm still going to go with it. Uh, okay. I'm not feeling very poised right now, but I'm glad that's what you were going to say. That's right. You're, uh, you're keeping your cool very well, even though your headphones aren't working and you're just uh, trying to hear us <laughs> through your computer. Yeah, I do. I will be setting my headphones on fire later, but for now, I'm going to fake being poised. All right. All right. Well, you're doing a great job. Fake Thank it till you, you make it, right? Um, okay. Well, Yvonne, uh, today, first of all, let me just uh, tell you who we are going to be talking to. Uh, we, I am very pleased to, be, to uh, have as our guest today, John Gomez. Uh, John is a trial lawyer from San Diego, California. He is the founder and uh, president of Gomez Trial Attorneys. You can look up John at GomezTrialAttorneys.com. Uh, John, I also saw a, a website that looked like thegomezfirm.com also goes to you. So I want to make sure that people can find you every way that they can. Thank you. Yeah, they uh, both work. Okay, great, great. And then I also saw, John, that you have a blog that it looks like you put some of your own sort of personal uh, thoughts out there on uh, called johngomezattorney.com. That's true. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I read those just briefly, and, and it looks like you have a lot of great things to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, before I uh, talk a little bit about your background, John, I want to just tell everybody what case we're going to be talking about. The case that, that we're talking about is a case that you tried uh, back in February of 2018. The name of the case is William and Elaine Kidd versus WKS Restaurant uh, Corps DBA El Pollo Loco and El Pollo Loco Inc., it was tried in the Superior Court of California, Kern County, and the result of the case was a, a total verdict of $16,232,416.80, uh, which was uh, 13, over, a little bit over $13 million in the compensatory for your client, William Kidd, and then a loss of consortium uh, verdict for his wife, Elaine, of $3 million. And before I go into it, this was a, at, at the core level, this was a slip and fall that happened at an El Pollo Loco uh, restaurant. Uh, and John, I got to tell you, when I first saw, you know, we're, we're, we're out here in Georgia, we're in Savannah, so we're on the opposite side of the country from you. When I first saw El Pollo Loco, I thought it was the same name as the uh, restaurant that's featured in Breaking Bad uh, until I had to look that up and I saw that that's called uh, Los Pollos Hermanos. But, uh, <laughs> Very similar. Right, right. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, well, John, let me talk a little bit about you so that our, our listeners can know, uh, know your background. So you started your law firm, Gomez Trial Attorneys, in 2005. Uh, you went to the University of San Diego and were an All-American football player 
uh, at the University of San Diego and is the, uh, what, what is the nickname for San Diego? Is that the Toreros? That's the Toreros. Yes, sir. Okay. Very good. Very good. Bullfighters. I looked that up, Steve. <laughs> nice. <Bullfighters>. nice. <laughs> I was going to take a guess. I knew it had something to do with bull. <laughs> Bullfighter sounds good. Bullfighters, correct. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you went to a, a small, uh, barely heard of law school called Yale. I've, uh, very few people have heard of that. I'm sure. Um, anyways, a, a great, great law school, obviously. Um, and then, uh, before you became a, a trial lawyer at your own firm, uh, for a short time, you were at a defense firm, like, like many of us started out and then you were an assistant U S attorney. Uh, um, is that the Southern district of California? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and then let me just go through some of your, your accomplishments, uh, because they are, they're a lot. Uh, in 2010, you were named by Lawyers USA as the National Lawyer of the Year. Uh, you have received nine outstanding trial lawyer awards uh, from the uh, trial bar in San Diego. You've been named as a top 100 uh, California attorney multiple times, a top 10 San Diego lawyer multiple times. Uh, you were named twice as the number one lawyer in San Diego in 2015 and 2016. And uh, in the Best Lawyers of America named you uh, the Product Liability Lawyer of the Year for San Diego for 2011 and 2012. Uh, you are also a member of the Summit Council, which is a, a very prestigious group of trial lawyers. Uh, and you have won numerous other awards. Uh, one, one thing that I, I, uh, I have a, a bit of, a, uh, I, I sympathize with you, although it's not, it, I shouldn't sympathize, but you list a, it on your website that you had five separate verdicts of over a million dollars where the defense firm or the, def the defendants offered nothing on those cases. And I'm very familiar with that circumstance. <laughs> yeah, it happens to us all. Right. I, I, I tell my, my defense lawyer friends that, uh, you know, every time they offer me nothing, I say, you know, the, the biggest verdicts that I've ever gotten are where they offered me nothing because uh, then you got nothing to lose. Exactly. So uh, and, and I do have to say, John, um, one of the things that we say on the end of our on the end of our podcast is we tell uh, uh, people that if they know of a trial lawyer that we should talk to or know, you know, of a case that we should talk about to let us know. And I have to say that, that uh, one of my defense lawyer friends in Atlanta uh, reached out to me after hearing us and said, you know what, you really need to call up this lawyer in San Diego, John Gomez. I think he's just the kind of person you'd want to talk to. Oh, so wow. you're, so uh, uh, that's, uh, we're very happy to have you on. Neat. Well, one of the other things I should say, John, just so everybody knows who you are, is you also were the uh, lawyer for the Sailor family in the uh, uh, Sailor versus Toyota, which, uh, if anybody recalls, was a very tragic uh, um, uh, collision. One of the first ones on the Toyota sudden acceleration, where you had a uh, Mark Sailor, I think, was the um, was a California Highway Patrolman. He had the, his accelerator stuck. He had a car full of people and family members, and he was actually recorded on nine one one. Uh, before the collision that took everyone's life. And uh, obviously that was a very tragic um, uh, event, but you were the lawyer for the family in that case. That's true. Yes. Uh, well, after all that, uh, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Super excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this case. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a background uh, of the case. And, and John, if I make any mistakes, please tell me, uh, uh, you know, what I've gotten wrong. As I understand it, back in September of 2012, your clients, uh, William and Elaine Kidd, uh, had a night where they were uh, having, wanted to have dinner together. Uh, one of the issues in the case, and we'll talk about this more, was that uh, they had uh, split a bottle of wine uh, that night, a bottle of two-buck chuck that you can pick up at Trader Joe's. And, um, and after uh, splitting the bottle of wine, they went to uh, a local restaurant, which was El Pollo Loco, uh, which serves chicken. Um, and, uh, and Yvonne's, uh, sent to show you, I know a little bit of Spanish. I know that means the crazy chicken. So, uh, um, yeah, yes. um, so, so they went to El Pollo Loco. They, they order their, uh, their meal. Um, and John, uh, uh sorry, not John, William, uh, uh, after eating, uh, has to use the restroom. Um, and at the same time, uh, this is right around nine o'clock at the same time, one of the workers at, uh, at El Pollo Loco uh, was basically cleaning up the restaurant, which as you, as we'll talk about was a violation of their uh, policies that you're not supposed to start cleaning the grill and things like that until after the restaurant closes. But he had started early because uh, basically because El Pollo Loco didn't want to pay people overtime, didn't want to uh, pay them extra money uh, to finish the job. So he started cleaning early um, and the allegation was is that uh, he uh, had sort of this greasy, watery mix that came out of uh, 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 spraying down the grill. And then he came out to wipe down some tables. While your, um, while your client was in the restroom, uh, he, he somehow came through that area, got some greasy water on the, on the floor. And when uh, William came out of the restroom, he slipped and fell and suffered uh, very, uh, very bad injuries. Um, from what I saw, and, and we'll talk more about this because uh, one of the things I thought you did a great job uh, in this case was going through the extent of his injuries, but uh, had separated his quadricep from his knee, uh, had suffered a closed head injury, uh, which over time developed into a subdural hematoma uh, and suffered brain injury because of that and had a number of cognitive issues. Uh, and that was essentially the case. Is that right, John? Yeah, that's a good summary. I will say that the worker denied being out on the floor doing the cleanup, but you know, that from, from our perspective, that's what happened. Yes. Right. Right. And, 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 and you know, from what I read in this case, that uh, this was one of those cases that was pretty hotly contested by the defense on just about every issue there was. I mean, there, there wasn't anything that, that they seemed to agree with you on, other than the, the fact that they said that Mr. Kidd was badly injured, but they didn't want to admit that they caused any of that. Yeah, I, I don't even know that they would agree that he was badly injured, you know, other than the quadricep tear. You know, I think they agreed with that. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a battle every day over every issue. Yeah, and, and it really, you know, <clears throat> makes me wonder, because sometimes you wonder how defense lawyers decide that they're going to try a case and, and you know, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a lawyer uh, where I live who's a defense lawyer, very well accomplished. He's sort of famous for um, admitting liability and then keeping damages, you know, down, uh, and that's his specialty. And it, this is one of those cases where it's it sort of set up for th that the defense could have said, 
yeah, you know what? We were cleaning early. We shouldn't have done that. And we're sorry he got hurt. We don't think he's injured as bad as what the plaintiffs are saying, but you know, uh, you know, we want to do the right thing here. Yeah. In hindsight, probably they wish they had done that, you know, but in my experience, you know, I've never, I don't think seen a defendant admit liability in a slip and fall case. You know, it seems they always want to blame the person falling to some degree, at least. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that I noticed in the uh, defense of this case, and, I, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on how you decided to overcome and attack these things, but, you know, when, when your client fell, um, according to one of the defense witnesses, uh, they came out and said that the, they saw the floor and the floor was bone dry. There was nothing there. Uh, and then they, they basically came up with just a bunch of theories on why he, why um, Mr. Kidd fell. Uh, like, for instance, they said, well, he, he might have tripped over his own feet. Uh, maybe it was because he drank this, uh, you know, half a bottle of two buck chuck. Uh, you know, maybe it's because he had uh, atrial fibrillation uh, or maybe he just got dizzy and really no explanation for why he got dizzy. But it's just basically just throwing all these things out there. Um, but tell, tell us, you know, how when you when you sort of come up to a defense where they're going to throw out, you know, all of these things with with not much to support it. Uh, you know, how do you go about uh, attacking that and presenting to the jury? Well, we were fortunate in our case that we had um, two witnesses that were first responders, one being um, a fire captain and one being a paramedic that both essentially undermined the defense's description of the phone of the floor is bone dry. So if those guys come in and testify, you know, the floor was wet and slippery and, you know, we could barely keep our footing ourselves, you know, that's a good start for me, you know, and, and that, um, because the, the, the whole, you know, sudden fainting, you know, stumbling, drunk, you know, all assumes an absence of stuff on the floor to make you slip, you know what I mean? Right. And so we had a good head start there. And then I think, you know, to your point, it probably blew up on them because they were taking super outlandish, unsupported positions, and it probably drove damages up. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions that they can help your clients in all aspects, please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. 
Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Before we go any further, I want to talk about, because this was kind of new to me, and I thought that this case might make me a vegetarian, at least for the next like, <laughs> couple weeks. Um, John, can you talk a little bit about um, why the floor was so slippery? Because it wasn't just that they were mopping, right? It wasn't just water. It was this whole process of cleanup that the restaurant was supposed to do after hours. Yeah, so um, El Pollo Loco is essentially a grilled chicken place. And so they have constant chicken on these grills. And, you know, during the course of the evening, um, you know, the grease is like dripping from the grills down into little catchers and that, and onto the floor in the kitchen also. And so um, at the end of the evening, once the customers leave, they spray down the grills you know, getting all that gunk and grease and chicken fat all over the place. And then they, they basically, you know, mop the floors and, and they use, um, like, uh, I forget what they call them now, but squeezies with handles to, you know, to, to push the, all the water and gunk toward the drains. And so, you know, the problem was in our case, like, um, Steve had said, they had started this process early so there's all that gunk on the floor. There's water, there's grease, there's fat, and there's soap. You know, and that whole combination is really slippery. And so if you can imagine if a guy in his big galosh boots walks out a little door into the customer hallway, then he's going to track all that stuff onto the floor. And that's what happened in our case. Yeah, I think you did a great job. I read the transcripts of, of sort of painting the picture of, of – of that mess and how it has to be cleaned up and how it starts. But when, and when I was first reading it, that was before I knew what happened, obviously. And I was like, is this going to be a fire case? Is this going to be like a, uh, like food poisoning case? Yeah, right. Yeah, it could have gone either way. could have gone a lot of directions. Yeah. That good. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, in, during Vordire, it, a lot of our would-be jurors have worked in fast food and we're kind of familiar with all that grease and, you know, the cleanup process. And so we kind of had a little bit of a head start, you know, with this group. So they knew, they, they knew how bad it could be and that if it gets anywhere, then it, then it can be very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, one thing that I, that I uh, really liked that you did in your opening statement was the, there was this uh, gentleman who was the one who had been cleaning the grill. His name was uh, Mr. Gonzalez. And, uh, and you know, and, and what he, basically what he was doing, he was cleaning the grill. He was washing it down. Uh, now, he was doing it before he was supposed to. Uh, but you weren't uh, you weren't attacking him for that. You were basically saying, you know, look, he's doing his job. They don't want him to work overtime. So what's he supposed to do? And I, I, I guess I, I just really like that approach of, uh, of, you know, not really going after the worker himself, but, uh, you know, after, you know, this sort of you know, like, let's ignore the, the safety rules in order to make sure that we're, we don't have to pay anybody overtime. Yeah, I, I think I learned, um, you know, I don't know when in my career I learned this, but I was learned, you know, I never want to put it on the individual because, you know, obviously that could endear some sympathy or empathy or understanding. You know, I always want to make it a systems failure, you know, and so that, you know, not only is Mr. Kidd a victim of this, but 
you know, this gentleman's somewhat of a victim of this. I mean, they don't give him time to do his job. And if he does his job properly, they're not going to pay him, you know? And so if I can design it as a systems failure, then that's going to, you know, I think interest the jury a lot more, get the jury a lot more emotionally concerned about, you know, what happened. And, and it, basically provides the recipe for replication if it's a systems failure if it happens again it could happen again and again and again and so i think that gets the jury a lot more concerned than just some guy going off the reservation and doing his own thing yeah well and i mean a lot of i I would think a lot of jurors a lot of people can understand that too have had some experience working in food and bev or in retail or in these situations where your hours get cut or you're only allowed to work a certain number of hours, but your tasks don't change. Your job doesn't change. You're just supposed to do it in less time or for less money. Um, so, I mean, I think I really related to that from the beginning. And it sounds like um, Luis, the, 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 the guy who was doing the cleanup, it sounded like he was kind of um, at least being somewhat honest about the situation in terms of when he that that was the only way to do his job was that he had to start clean up early. Yeah. You know, two things. One, a lot of people on our jury had had experiences with employers that would uh, demand or encourage them to cut corners to save money, you know? Um, And so a lot of, you know, our jurors could relate to that dynamic. And um, for the cook, Luis Gonzalez, you know, I think like he, he, you could tell he was kind of like torn um, because he didn't want to fully admit his complicity in all this. You know, he didn't want to admit that he walked out on the floor and actually tracked the stuff out there. And um, to me, that's not, that's always the case. It seems because he didn't work there anymore. He didn't like those guys, but still he's not going to say, look, I caused the guy's brain damage, you know, but he was pretty darn honest about the rest of it. Like he was very helpful on the systems failure. Um, I, well, I'm glad to hear that he wasn't working there anymore because I don't know what he was like at trial, but I, like, I got really worried that he lost his job or he got fired for uh, telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he would have for sure because when he, when he went in to testify, you know, the, the corporate sort of representative was almost mad-dogging him. You know, I would describe it as that i mean they were kind of thuggish you know in their sort of demeanor and approach yeah. you mean mad dogging him like uh while he was on the stand or what i like look giving him the the evil eye or something like that or yeah while he was testifying i mean you know nothing super overt not flashing signs at him or anything but certainly not showing <laughs> hey louise how are you, you know, like, right it was clear <laughs> That they were, you know, the guy was trying to kind of steer him down. One, one step short of the, like, finger across the throat. Yeah, this, right. is a, this is a podcast, but I think, I think you guys yeah. know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> not, not quite that. Not quite that. Well, you know, you know, as part of the, you know, and, and I, I thought the theme of the systems failure, you know, obviously worked very well in this case. And, and I, I did see that in your closing, you talked about one of the crosses. I think it was of a maybe a, a man, a regional manager, a manager of a different restaurant where she said something to the effect of, uh, yeah, we, we always make sure to close the store before we clean the grill and we would never do that. And you got her to admit that it takes two to three hours 
to do all of that. And then when you looked at her timesheets, you know, the store closed at 10 and everybody was gone by 11. And then how does she explain, you know, getting this done if it takes two to three hours? I thought that was great. Thanks. Yeah, they were not, um, their corporate witnesses were not very good. <laughs> right. They, they just were not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounded like, did you have surveillance? We did. Um, you know, and I can, I can actually thank Mr. Gonzalez for that because he was willing to meet with us before trial and explained kind of the system breakdown and actually said to me, he goes, I bet they're still doing it now. And I was like, huh, I wonder <laughs> if they are. And so, and so we said it was like the second day of trial, I think, that we sent an investigator over to the exact store and sure enough, you know, he got it on video of them spraying down the grills with customers in the store, even after our guy fell. And then he went back the next day and got it again. And, and the next day he got it with a, with the manager walking past with a, with the manager's jacket on. So we had, yeah, we had surveillance, basically um, sub Rosa video on the defendants. That's awesome. Wow. I mean, what did they do at that point? I mean, how did they try to explain that away? They were um, in a difficult situation because I didn't put it on my case in chief because I thought they would call the, the corporate representative to testify. And I was going to impeach him one more time. I, I would ask every witness, you know, oh, so you never, you know, do this. And they would say, no, never, never. And I go, and I would always end by saying, in fact, it's not true. You're doing it to this day. And they would say, no, no, no. No, I was setting up the impeachment. Um, and so their last guy testifies and I impeach him the same way. And so the judge says, do you have any rebuttal? And I say, yes. And he goes, well, um, what is it? I go, we should probably talk about it. And so we go into the hall and I tell him what I have. And the judge is like, that's impeachment. It's coming in. I've been seeing this coming for weeks. <laughs> right. and, the, and the defense lawyer just went crazy. She couldn't believe it. You know, so I put the guy, she didn't really have much time. And you could tell, you know, I don't know, she wasn't, she's not super quick on her feet, you know. So <laughs> I, I put the guy on and their big, their big um, sort of uh, attack was, that it appeared to be that there wasn't actually chicken on the grill while they were spraying the grill. Like at least they weren't contaminating the food. Right. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, or, or there wasn't, I think she also tried to say there weren't, weren't timestamps on the video, you know, and they could have made the whole thing up. Or, uh, it was tough. Well, you know, one of the other pieces of evidence that I, I noticed that was that, that they had a, um, a risk manager come and, and uh, investigate it. And when she filled out her own report, I mean, she wrote it down as a slip and fall. Right. So yeah. how, how do they deal with the, the fact that she wrote it down as a slip and fall by then saying, no, nah, no, it's a, he tripped over his own feet or, you know, any he of these. drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now that was, um, you know, the, the, focus, or I'm sorry, the jury was, you know, very sort of concerned about that. You know, if they were very persuaded by the company's own investigation and findings. And so um, it, it seems to happen a lot, you know, like we fight really hard to get the investigative report. A lot of times they'll claim it's work product or something like that. Right. You know, but more times than not, they're going to put in there something like, 
slip and fall, corrective action, you know, put signs out or something like that, you know, and um, it's just a beautiful thing for you when you try your case because for sure every fall case I've ever had by the time they get to trial, the lawyers have all these experts coming in and saying atrial fibrillation or excessive alcohol or a mixture of, you know, they, they try to come up with all kinds of crazy things. But yeah, I think that was another good piece of evidence for us. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a great piece of evidence. And then you know, I was I was thinking about this case is that this really did, uh, or at least a big part of the case, other than stuff like that, really came came down to this credibility battle between your clients and then against the uh, the the defense witnesses. And so I'm assuming that your clients must have done great on the stand. But did, to, how how did they uh, how, how did they come across? You're right. They did great on the stand, and they're just very um, salt of the earth very credible, you know, understated um, people, you know, in that community too. I mean, they're just exactly like, you know, everyone from there is. And so it's, you're right. I mean, they, they probably, Oh yeah. I forgot one other thing. Yeah. They, they also, you probably noticed, you know, they admitted in a request for admission that the guy slipped. You know, so, so that, came, that came in too. <laughs> well, I, I, I saw you say that in closing, but I wasn't sure if you were talking about what they said in the, uh, in the report or if, if there was something else. But so, I mean, how does that slip by them? I don't know. It was crazy. You know, and we got, so you're right. It was just credibility after credibility after credibility. They just look like liars, you know, so many successive times, you know, to the point where I think the, the jury probably took it out on them a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, you know, the danger of, of when you defend a case like that, uh, you know, especially when you're throwing out all these things and then, you know, if, if it looks like you're trying to pull a fast one on the jury for, for either side, uh, it really comes back to haunt you. And, and, and obviously it did in this case. Um, did you get a chance to talk to the jury afterwards and did they tell you any of their thoughts about it? Yeah, we talked to them. Um, Briefly, you know, um, when I win, I try not to talk to them that much. Right. You know, just, <laughs> right. I just try to shake hands and say thank you and all that kind of thing. You know, but they were um, they were pretty moved by um, the company's internal investigation. You know that that found it was a slip, and um, there was a there was a period of time there were a couple of them that were fighting with intoxication, but they got by that pretty quickly. You know, the verdict didn't take very long; it only took maybe two and a half hours of deliberation. Wow. You know, which, yeah, with a number that high out here is like pretty fast. Right. Um, so, you know, I, other than that, they just, um, you know, they, they were not happy with the defense tactics. Right. For sure. um, getting a quick question about your clients um, before I forget to ask you this. Um, I noticed at part of the transcript where the judge reminded you to use their formal names. Right. Um, is that like a typical California thing or what's that about? Um, it really varies from judge to judge. You know, in, in that case, I can't remember if I was calling him Bill or something. He made me call him Mr. Kid. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, that'll happen from time to time in front of certain judges, but there's no hard and fast rule. It's, it's hard for me because, you know, I don't call anybody Mr. Kid or Mrs. Kid. Right. right. 
Well, and I actually saw the uh, the defense objected to it, which I I had never heard of before. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, so it, I guess it's just the specific judge whether or not they're going to let you uh, uh, personalize them that way. Yeah, it, it very much depends on the judge. I would say it's a decreasing minority of judges that require that formality. And she was just obstreperous at every level. So whatever she could do to get in the way, you know, she tried to do. You, you mean the defense lawyer, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I noticed quite a few objections, both during the opening and the, and the closing, which, uh, you know, generally, uh, you know, we as lawyers try to stay away from unless it's something, you know, really, really bad. Right. Yeah. I thought, yeah. <laughs> There were a lot of objections in that trial. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and it's, I know we've said it before on the show, but when you object like that, I mean, all it does is, is pull the jury's attention to whatever you're objecting to. Yeah, whatever she did, it didn't work for her. And, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> they weren't super complimentary of her after the fact. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about the damages in this case and, and how you went about presenting the, uh, the damages. And, and, and I wanted to ask you a, a specific question real quickly, which was, it, it didn't look like you had a punitive damages claim, although it looked like you might have been able to. Did you, um, did you consider that? or? Um, you know, it, it wasn't pled initially. Um, and... Um, you know, did we consider amending it? You know, I came in essentially to try the case, so I wasn't really involved at that point. Right. You know, and for, and for me, um, on a case like that, I think I would prefer to get the punitive compensation in the compensatory phase, you know, because I'm going to get paid. I'm not going to be dealing with some crazy appeal. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, I get the benefit of a punitive, you know, finding more or less you know, with that number, with 16 and a half, you know, like if I had gotten, if they were going to give punitives, they wouldn't have given them, I don't think, 16 and a half million in compensatory. And then I'm dealing with like, is it a proper multiplier? You know, and right. then I, I'm not getting paid out of insurance. And so, you know, the short answer is, you know, I suppose in theory we could have, I didn't really, I wasn't that involved in the case at a time when we could have amended, but having you know, sat here and thought about it in response to your question. I'm, I'm glad we didn't have one. Right, right. Well, yeah, looking back, I, I, I totally agree. I, you know, in, in Georgia, uh, you know, there's certain evidence you can't get in unless it's for punitive damages. And so, right. you know, as a strategic matter in your, you know, case you want to put punitives in so that you can make sure to get in, you know, some of that evidence that adds heat to the case. Yeah, I mean, in this case, practically speaking, going back to your first question, I mean, they could have stipulated liability and, you know, uh, eliminated all that bad evidence too, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's I, a fall then. I mean, especially when you've got a uh, request to admit and a report, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> where the thought process there was not to, uh, to not just go ahead and admit, uh, admit liability and then focus on the damages. Yeah. Um, well, so walk us through uh, the injuries he suffered, and, and then, and then, um, you know, I, I wrote down some notes on that, but, uh, um, you know, and how you went about presenting that to the jury. Well, um, like you said, basically he suffered a severe uh, quadricep injury, you know, which was one componentry of his harm. You know, a lot of times I tell uh, my younger lawyers here will get a brain injury case, but there's going to be orthopedic injuries involved as well. 
and they kind of overlooked the orthopedic injury. Um, right. And here, I mean, that's a major injury in and of, of itself. So, um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to do with that. I mean, we had um, the, the surgeon that operated on him testify, and it's a pretty graphic, nasty injury to the leg. You know, but obviously the big ticket item is his mind. Um, and so he did suffer this kind of slow bleed subdural hematoma um, that resulted in a complicated monotraumatic brain injury, which really affected every con part of his life, you know. And right. so um, those cases, uh, you know, we like doing. Um, the, we had a lot of affected before and after witnesses. Um, he also had gone undergone um, a program at a place called uh, the Center for Neuroskills. So he did like a residential sort of, you know, long-term program. And so whenever I get someone that's done a program like that, I really like to use their, the people from there because they work them up and assess right. them. They have all kinds of, you know, great stuff to say about them, um, which was the case here. You know, so like, he didn't testify a whole lot. If you read the transcript, um, his wife testified a fair amount. His daughter testified a fair amount. Then we had some good before and after witnesses. And then I think it's just a matter of, you know, really working with the client enough to understand the impact on their life. And so for him, you know, the impact on his life was, you know, overwhelming, especially to me, like jurors get concerned about, the way it impacts your ability to be happy with your family. Yeah. So he had grandkids that really couldn't come over. You can really hang out with them and get too noisy and chaotic. You know, he, he started fighting with his wife, you know, who he never really fought with before. He couldn't work, you know, he had no, he had lost his pride, you know, so a lot of things that we can kind of all relate to, um, you know, so that's kind of what we did. Yeah, and I should say that he was a, a business owner of an insurance agency, right? And that he ran with his daughter? Yeah, he ran with his wife and his daughter, yeah. And, 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 go Steve, ahead. I think we should also mention that um, I think a lot of the lawyers who are listening might probably know this, but um, that because this might be the first case we've done on the podcast with a, with a traumatic brain injury that's kind of – something that might not show up on imaging or might, you know, you might deal with the issues. Cause I didn't know about that until I started practicing, right. That you can have these serious, severe injuries to the brain that are very hard to, you don't just have like an X-ray with like a jagged line through the brain. It's hard to, um, you have to demonstrate the injury in other ways. And that's how defendants can kind of argue there isn't an injury because you can't just point to imaging and show it in like a black and white way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we do um, a fair amount of mild traumatic brain injuries where they'll have a clean CT, a clean MRI. You know, we can use advanced imaging to demonstrate a deficit, but, you know, the defendants fight us hard on that. You know, it's right. still evolving medicine. Um, here, I mean, in fairness to this case, I, I had an actual brain bleed you know, where they had to do an actual, you know, surgery, you know, which gives me a, a leg up, you know, over right. the other mild traumatic brain injury cases I might do. But basically the defense said, look, once they relieved the pressure of the, the hematoma, he was fine. 
and any remaining cognitive problems he had were caused by um, uh, just AIDS-related degeneration. Well, yeah, and I saw at one point they were trying to suggest that he might have Alzheimer's or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's exactly what they said. Um, and, and it also looked like the, so the subdural hematoma, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, and if I explain this wrong, John, please uh, correct me, but it's basically uh, in the layers uh, above the brain, uh, you have the dura, and, and so it's subdura, there's a bleed there that builds up, and then that can actually get into the brain and, and cause damage uh, that way. And, and the thing that's so dangerous about a subdural hematoma is that it can go uh, unrecognized for weeks or even months uh, and cause damage. And I mean, and the, the, your client or whoever has this might just think that they have bad headaches and not sure why they have them. Exactly. Um, I actually had some experience with that. My, when I was a young lawyer, one of the, um, the law firms I worked for, uh, we had just brought on this new partner and he was moving into the office and we had one of these old elevators with a, uh, like this sliding gate and he tripped and fell and hit his head. Uh, while he was carrying in some boxes and then it was about two months later he just kept having headaches and he went into the hospital and they realized he had a subdural hematoma and they had to they had to uh, put a shunt in and it was uh, it was pretty traumatic for him um, so you mentioned that you're um uh that mr kidd couldn't didn't do a whole lot of testifying but did he um did he sit through the trial every day was he there every day how did he handle that um in a case like that, you know, I don't want my client there the whole time because um, for a couple reasons, you know, one, it kind of normalizes him or her to some degree, you know, because if you look at him, he looks great, fine. You know, you wouldn't think anything's wrong with him. Right. And then secondly, there's good to be testimony from him and other witnesses and providers that, you know, too much noise or, you know, too much stuff, you know, bothers him or too much light bothers him or being around too many people bothers him. So, I mean, it's a little disingenuous to have him sitting there in a room with, you know, 25 people and all kinds of action all day. And so for him, like I would have him come in maybe not every day, but every couple of days for like, you know, an hour in the morning and then I'd send him home and I like, I don't want to beat my guy up. You know, I don't want him all with a headache and all wasted and tired and all that, you know? And so right. I, and they want to be there, but so I cater to their ability to be there. If he can legitimately be there like three hours a week, then that's when I, that's how I have them there. And they're really nice people. So like, otherwise I, I would want them there because they're that, that jury's really going to like them, you know, but I think, you know, maybe at some level seeing him there for an hour and then he's gone, you know, the wife's still there that may drive home the message a little bit. Right. And I mean, in the reality of what their life is really like, they, they, they're really having these moments in life where he can't handle certain situations or where he has to take time away. Totally. Yeah. It's consistent with the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned was that the, these uh, before and after witnesses and, and not everybody understands, but, uh, but basically you were bringing in family members and friends to talk about the changes that they saw in them, because that's what we see in brain injury cases that, you know, uh, Mr. Kidd may not recognize everything, his changes in personality, but the people around him uh, really recognize it. And so, uh, and so that's what you were able to do in this case? Yes, and I had some great ones, you know, thankfully. 
I think um, in these kinds of cases, those witnesses are super, super important. And so, you know, if you have good before and after witnesses, it's very helpful to the case. You know, so for him, you know, he used to be a very sociable, affable guy. You know, some people talked about that and how afterwards, you know, he never wants to go out anymore. He isolates. You know, he used to know everybody's name anywhere they went. He'd start talking to them. But they tried to go out once and, you know, he um, someone came up to him and he couldn't remember the name and got embarrassed and then had to leave because it was loud. You know, that kind of stuff, you know, right. it's pretty effective, you know. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. I was going to ask as a sort of practice pointer for, for newer lawyers, what kinds of things do you like to do with damages witnesses like that to get them comfortable on the stand to make sure they kind of go to the places that you want them to go? Um, we kind of, you know, talk more about stories and scenes, you know, so I think most people are comfortable relating a story, you know, so, you know, I'll chat with them and then we'll figure out what little stories we want to tell. And then we kind of, you know, might work on the stories a little bit, you know, so it's pretty natural and easy for most people to tell a little story. Oh, I was out one time with Bill, you know, and this happened, you know, and then afterwards I was out one time with Bill and this happened. You know, and they can kind of see that and visualize that. Um, and so, like, I, I would say that's the best tip I have, just really working on stories versus, you know, just a stream of, you know, testimony, formal testimony. Yeah, right. I like that. I'm stealing it. All right. Stories. <laughs> right. <laughs> stories. <laughs> um, it, Everybody it, it, likes stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and one of the other things I thought a uh, point that you made that it was just uh, everybody can identify with is, you know, that his uh, daughter just, you know, loved that she had this great dad who was so involved. And then when it came to her kids, uh, you know, he just wasn't able to really have that kind of relationship with them and how devastating that must have been to both him and to the kids. Yeah, 100 percent. I think um, anytime I have any effect on kids whether it be a parent or grandparent, because probably most of us can relate to that. We were all kids at one point, maybe some of us have kids, you know, or if we don't have kids, we see how important, you know, the relationship 
between parents and children are to others. You know, if there's something about an injury that affects that relationship, you know, I think that's always super important to explore. So for him, yes, I mean, I think he would have been like the super best grandfather ever, and now he really can't participate. Right. Um, you, you, one of the terms that you use, and I'd like to, uh, you to talk about this a little bit is, is something you called human damages. Can you talk to us a little bit about human damages and how you, uh, express that to the jury? Yeah. So, um, human damages would be, and, and so in his case, we didn't have loss of earnings. We had, um, some past medical and some future medical expenses, but not huge. You know, there were whatever number you guys said, you know, 300 and something thousand. And so, you know, human damages are damages to the person, you know, non-economic damages that are not, you know, going to be paid to a doctor that do not replace lost wages, but, you know, really um, constitute the harm to the human being. And so in California for, you know, for him, you know, it's things like loss of enjoyment of life, anxiety, um, mental suffering, pain, you know, those sort of intangibles. And so um, he has human suffering and then his wife has human suffering by virtue of, of her loss of the relationship. And so it's what makes us human, basically. Yes. It's the most important stuff we have. No, I, I, I love that concept, uh, and, and I love the way that you, uh, you explained that to the jury because it's really something everybody can understand. Um, one of the other injuries that you mentioned was this issue with his eyes. It was called, you called it a convergence insufficiency. Tell us what, what was that? So convergence insufficiency is um, it's often caused by brain injuries, and it causes kind of a jumbling of images. So um, the, you know, I don't have the medicine at the tip of my tongue right now, but basically the brain is unable to filter whatever the, the eye is bringing in to the degree that it used to be able to. And so um, we had a neuro-ophthalmologist that testified at trial, and she had like a little chart that kind of showed what it looked like. Um, and it, it causes you, you can really concentrate and make the image sharp and discernible, you know, but you really have to concentrate and it really tires you out. And so he had that. And so the problem is with that, he would have to focus so much on things like reading or deciphering a computer that after like an hour, he would be totally wiped out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he has to like use all his brain power and energy to decipher an image that Previously, you know, he wouldn't have even had to think about. And one of the other examples that you uh, um, uh, mentioned that I thought, you know, just sounded like it'd be really terrible is he had this depth perception problem so that if, if he were driving a car or somebody else driving a car, he might actually think a car was going to hit them when it was not close to them at all. Um, exactly. Yeah. So that's why he stopped driving. Yeah. You know, for the most part, and particularly at night. Well, yeah, and, and then that just sort of plays into this just, you know, whole lack of independence that, you know, that you had this, you know, business owner who was an active guy who was out there in the community and now, you know, he couldn't even drive his own car and, and, and you know, and was uh, affected every part of his life and how devastating that can really be. Exactly. I, we he, should... he was one of those guys that would always drive every time, you know, and, and now he could never drive. Right. Yeah. 
Um, we should point out that the jury had the the option on the verdict form to find if he was if Mr. Kidd was negligent, and and they decided that he was not. In Cal in California, how does that work? Do you get like a they allocate percentages and then your recovery is reduced? Yeah, exactly. So if they had said he was fifty percent responsible, then that would knock down his recovery fifty percent. You know, I know some states are like. If you get 1%, you're out. Right. Or if you get 51%, you're out. We that's don't have us. like yeah. that. Yeah, we don't have that. It's just straight comparative. Actually, in Georgia, if you're 50%, then you're out. You, uh, you, oh. you can't be 50% at fault. You got to be less than that. But huh. um, Well, fortunately, we came out at zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, they pushed hard on that, obviously, especially with the intoxication issue, but. In the end, I don't think the jury was buying that at all. Yeah, t talk to me about, you know, because I, I, I saw the reference in there, you know, so they drink this bottle of Two Buck Chuck, which, you know, anybody who's had Two Buck Chuck, I think, of, you know, would know the bottle's, you know, not actually all that much alcohol. But, um, you know, so they, but they, they split this bottle and then they, they drove to the Pollo uh, Loco. Uh, and I, I saw the defense lawyer mention that, it, you know, was that ever an issue about, you know, well, they're, drinking and then they get they drive and then you know and then he falls i mean how did you address those issues with the jury well i wasn't um super happy about the prospect of them surmising that he uh that he drank and drove you know so the the blood alcohols came back um different obviously from our toxicologists and their toxicologists so we've got them legal they've got them illegal um, you know, uh, I think in the end, they just didn't think that he was intoxicated, you know, um, I think, uh, and, and that place we tried the case is, is a place where, um, they enjoy their, 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 their <laughs> evenings with beverages. Right. You know, right. So maybe, they, maybe they, maybe they weren't that worked up over it, you know, in the end, you know, but I don't know. I mean. To me, um, you know, splitting a bottle of wine with your wife and then eating, you're not going to be drunk enough to right. fall anywhere. And, and how many of us have, you know, I think I said this in the, in the closing too, I mean, you go to a restaurant, you know, and they serve you wine, you know, um, it, does that mean that everybody that, that drinks wine at the restaurant is, is negligent or somehow doing something bad? I mean, it's just part of life. Right. You know, so thankfully he just had one bottle of crappy wine. You know, right. it would have been a much more difficult undertaking if he had had one himself. Right, right. <laughs> well, and you know that brings up a good point. Did you? So in 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 voir dire, did you bring that up? And and t tell us, you know, how did you go about uh, picking this jury? And were you, were you looking for any particular type of juror? Um, you know, I'm mainly looking for badgers um, to eliminate jurors. Yeah. And so um, I've got a slip and fall. So anyone, there's some people in my experience that are super hostile to anyone that falls. They're always going to blame that person. So if, if I can find those people, I'm looking to eliminate them. Um, people that are super hardcore about alcohol, you know, I wanted to eliminate them people that um, were very averse to large verdicts or pain and suffering damages, you know, I want to eliminate them. Um, and, you know, just angry, mean people, I want to get rid of them. Right. You know, but the, the great thing was that 
this panel, this veneer was pretty friendly, you know, pretty good on my issues. Um, so, you know, I, I try a lot of cases where I walk in and start talking to the jury and say, oh man, this is going to be a tough, tough sell with this group. Yeah. You know, but that was not the case with, with this group. You know, I, I was doing some strikes, but they were more surgical than completely necessary. You know, yeah. we get like six strikes. Um, you know, as I recall, I used like two and then we just started passing to where they basically burned all their strikes. And then we had to, we kind of moved up into the box people that we thought would improve the, the, the group even more. Right. Wow. That's great. I don't think I've ever been uh, in a position where I, where I felt comfortable enough to just pass on a, uh, on a strike. I mean, uh, you know, but, but that, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a good, um, it's a good feeling. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, one thing I, I wasn't sure about when you uh, did in your closing, did you suggest to the jury a, a number or a range or how did you go about presenting, you know, what uh, verdict amount they should think about? Yeah, I did suggest a number. Um, as I recall, it was $20 million in non-economic damages. Um, and I think that was split 15 to him and five to her. And, you know, they came off those numbers a little bit. Right. I, I initially was actually going to go higher, um, but my co-counsel from my firm and somebody else from my firm said, you know, had you know the the that place has a very conservative reputation, and um, it's not super wealthy, and folks thought that that might be too heavy of an ask. Right. On the case, but. In hindsight, I mean, they just they just shaved a little. They might have gone higher if I stuck with my number, <laughs> right, yeah. original number. Um, and they were so pissed off at the defendants, they're not going to get mad at me for asking for a big number. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. During the trial, you know, I think we've all been there when you, uh, you know, at some point in the trials, sometimes, and it doesn't happen often, but sometimes you can see that the jury uh, is upset and that they're with you. Did you see that happen in this case? Uh, yeah, I got into it with, like, very aggressively with one of their defense doctors. Um, and the guy was very hostile he was the guy that had said, oh, it's a combination of him just peeing and, um, and him being, you know, I, I think it was like diabetic or something. And, you know, he came up with all these crazy things and said that's why he fell. Um, but that guy got very hostile with me, um, and we kind of got combative. And I was kind of walking away from the guy, like turning my back to him, shaking my head, like, like, and uh, like half the jury – like my guys, I had a little core group. They all started laughing right. at the guy, you know, or at the moment, perhaps, you know. And I thought at that point, okay, um, that's good. You right. Know? right. <laughs> they were just kind of laughing at the guy. Because I was looking at him, shaking my head like, like this with my hands up. And they started laughing. <laughs> I go, who is this guy? Come on. <laughs> well, it, it, wait, did I hear that correctly? He said that him falling had to do with him peeing. I mean, what, how does yeah, that it was, uh, it was work? A crazy comedy. It was like the perfect storm. I've had two cases like this where they say the perfect storm caused the guy to fall. You know, so <laughs> it's like he had just eaten, he had just peed, he had had alcohol, atrial fibrillation, and like his medications. You know, all combined together. You know, yeah. to cause him to fall. And that was this guy. 
And he was oh, just like, I just didn't, I mean, it was such an, an obviously dishonest medical opinion that, you know, it's somewhat, you know, maddening, you know, but he like immediately got super aggressive with me and combative and, and I had been with the jury for two weeks. They kind of liked me. They never heard of this guy. So right. yeah. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess his perfect storm didn't include the fact that there might be greasy water on the right. floor. I mean, that was a part of the storm. Um, well let me ask you did did, uh talk to us a little bit did you focus this case uh ahead of time and we did what did you learn from the focus groups if you if you did that yeah we did some focus groups um we i think we did because i was in trial until like the wednesday before this trial so you know normally i would do more but i think we did like two and um we, I mean, it, they really directed us toward that systems failure issue, you know, and especially if we could get in that, you know, they weren't paying overtime and people weren't getting paid, you know, that is really where they directed us. In my experience, you know, like at least the focus groups I do, they're not a super good predictor on monetary compensation. Right. You know, they'll give me a pretty good idea of um, whether they're buying the injury but, you know, pricing the injury, you know, I don't really get a good feel for that. Um, but, you know, I felt pretty decent on liability after having focused the, the case. Just, I think just two times. Yeah. And I, normally I, like, I'm trying a case next week and we've done it like 12 times. So, <laughs> uh, who knows? I mean, maybe maybe sometimes less preparation is better. Well, I, I mean, I you know, and, and focus groups are always valuable, but but you're right. I mean, it all depends on the the uh, group of people uh, that you happen to get in there for that that particular focus group. But I I, I agree with you on the damages. I've had focus groups, uh, you know, give me you know the same same group. One person wants to give me one million, the other person wants to give me 150 million, and it's kind of like, well, uh, you know, obviously. Uh, and then some people obviously want to give you zero, but uh, you know that. Sure. that uh, that happens. Yeah, I did see one of the pieces of evidence you were able to get in was that that the uh, manager's bonuses were tied to keeping uh, labor costs down, and uh, that had to be a pretty effective point in in proving you know this, this sort of violation of their own policies. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of kept going back to that, you know, that this was all, you know, a money saving, you know, uh, practice, and it came in you know, pretty cleanly, you know, through their people on cross. Um, it, she would get in the way on, on other things, but really the, the strategically important stuff kind of stayed out of the way. <laughs> like, right. Oh, man. Well, um, well, listen, uh, this has been just a, a great conversation. Yvonne, do you have any other, any other questions uh, for John? You know, I don't. I think it's just like it's fun to ask him questions because I love his California accent that I, I want to come up with more. But that's all I've got. Yeah, I, I, I shouldn't. Uh, you know, I just talked to him. Uh, you know, our, we have an office in Atlanta and I talked to my partner up there and they're getting ready for a, a winter storm there, which we're not thank, thankfully down here in Savannah. But I should mention that John happens to live in just one of the most beautiful parts of the world with, I think probably the best weather in the world. Uh, I've never been to San Diego when it just hasn't been beautiful. It's a good spot. I'm lucky. 
Um, well, John, I, I listen, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us. Is there anything else about this case that you want to that you want to talk about or that, that you think is important for our uh, audience to know about? Um, nothing that really comes to mind. I think you guys captured it all. Thank you. Well, this is obviously a fantastic job. And, and as you said, you're going to be in trial uh, next week. So I, I wish you the best of luck on that. And maybe we'll be talking about that case in the future. That'd be awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, let, let, me, uh, let me remind uh, our, our audience uh, that we've been talking about the case of Kid versus WKS Restaurant DBA El Pollo Loco. Uh, this was a total verdict of uh, $16,232,000 and some change. Uh, and we have been talking with our guest, John Gomez. John is the uh, president and co-founder of Gomez Trial Attorneys. And you can look up John at GomezTrialAttorneys.com. Uh, John, thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at GreatTrialsPodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.